On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast, Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson. We're talking about education. Ontario students are apparently going back to school in class in the fall, but what do we do to catch them up since everybody says that they have lost an awful lot of learning time? We're going to talk to Paul Bennett, educational expert about that. We're going to talk about the mob in Hamilton. There's a great series in the spec right now about the killing of Ange Musatano and stuff that's been going on. Is the mob still active in this city? It's a lot quieter, except for these killings. What is going on right now? We'll talk about that. And Zach Hyman's agent, Zach Hyman just left the Leafs to go to the Edmonton Oilers. Huge contract. His agent is a Burlington guy. He joins us to talk about what goes on behind the scenes in these negotiations. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Scott Thompson Show for a Wednesday here on 900 CHML. Thanks for being with us. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson on National Buffalo Soldiers Day. It's true. It's not just the song. Buffalo Soldiers. You know what the Buffalo Soldiers were? It's a true story. They were the first army regiment made up of African-American soldiers in the States. Formed in 1866. That was what Buffalo, that's what he's singing about with Buffalo Soldiers. So there you go. Happy Buffalo Soldiers Day. Thanks for being here. As I say, Scott Radley in for the vacationing Scott Thompson this week. And uh, Will Erskine, who is back at the home office and has been uh, per- operating and producing the show, he has been busy. He has lined up an outstanding show today. Let me tell you. Um, we're going to be talking education in a moment. The Premier said that Ontario schools are going to be open in the fall for in-class learning. I mean, I suppose anything is possible. Anything could happen that might turn that back but this seems to be the momentum right now and that sounds like great news it really does and i think most kids would even say that sounds like great news even those who may hate school at this point i think they're probably saying yeah I'm, i'm ready but what do we do about the time that's been lost and the learning that has been missed how do we catch up? I want to bring in Paul Bennett. He is the director and lead researcher at Schoolhouse Institute. Uh, he is Canada's leading educational analyst. He joins us now. Paul, how are you today? Thanks for doing this. Nice to be with you again. Before we dive into the really deep water here, um, I, I, I think it's great news that kids are apparently going to be back in person in class. There, there is no downside to that, is there? No, except that there really isn't a clear and defined back-to-school plan. In fact, the uh, Toronto Star has an editorial saying, where is Ontario's back-to-school plan? And I think that's the, uh, the fly in the ointment. While everyone wants schools to be resumed and um, kids back after about uh, 18 months of disruptions, I think there's a very real question about whether the plan is there to ensure their safety and the well-being of both students and teachers. And I think, I mean, I don't know. We may be hearing some of that from Christine Elliott uh, later today at one o'clock from Queen's Park. That may be on the agenda. I'm guessing it might be part of it. Um, Okay, so we've now gone through this experiment, though, of close to 18 months minus summer holidays of learning at home. Have we, uh, have educators, have people like you who study this, have we concluded that in-person is a vastly better model than online for teaching? Yes, we have, but that's by default, and it's uh, without much in the way of hard evidence as to what's gone on. In fact, that we do lack the evidence. Here's what we know. We know that um, some 100,000, at least, Ontario students were lost during the COVID uh, disruption. 
they were either tuned out, they didn't attend, or they were marginally involved in something called remote learning. So that's 10,000 students. We also know that um, independent and private schools have picked up students. They, uh, they now have 1,595 private and independent schools in the province of Ontario, 80 new ones since the beginning of the uh, COVID disruption. There are 155,000 students now in very small private independent schools. So there's fallout from the system. We also know that there's no real plan for, um, I would call, learning recovery. And in fact, the Premier and the Minister of Education have been asked constantly, almost at every press conference, what's the plan to get kids back and caught up to speed in their education? There is really nothing there. Um, I'm more concerned really about the uh, validity and the, um, the definition of a back-to-school plan. There are still a lot of moving parts, and I think for health and safety alone, we need to have more detail about what the plan is going to be. I, and I think a lot of people would agree with that for sure. They don't want to send their kids back unless there is a plan. So as I say, hopefully, I'm touching wood, hopefully there is one that's coming out very, very shortly to try and give some people some confidence. Um, back to the remote learning for just a second, because we've always been told, at least for a long time now, this in some fashion is going to be the future. And yet now we're saying, well, it didn't work as well. Did it not? Does it not work as well, period? Or have we just not figured out because we made this up on the fly, how to make it work as well? Well, it was never intended as the total replacement for in-person schooling. Even the most ardent advocates of uh, online learning had favored um, a few courses, um, maybe two, four in the high school levels to give students an opportunity to learn on their own and to give them a chance to experience independent learning. But I don't know of too many people who've advocated replacing in-person schooling with virtual schools. That's a very, very small segment of the population. What happened over the course of the last uh, 18 months to two years is that whole segments of the population were forced by default into remote learning or hybrid models, and they were ill-prepared for it. And the teachers themselves weren't either uh, favorably disposed towards it or well enough prepared to make it work. Now, things got better in the second uh, year, of course. But keep in mind, Ontario has the worst problem of any of the provinces. Ontario students lost 28 weeks of regular school, more than any other jurisdiction in Canada by a long shot. And so there's a lot of uh, work that was missed. Even the most enthusiastic proponents of online learning admit that, say, a hybrid model means you're at most, and these are the top students, going to cover about 70%, maybe 66, two-thirds of what they normally would in a regular school. The school days are shorter. Uh, the um, focus points and the, the actual time on task is less. And the expectations are less in all uh, hybrid learning environments. So uh, kids are behind. They're behind for two reasons. Either they tuned out, uh, turned off their, um, their um, cameras and weren't engaged directly, or they simply just didn't do the work because the consequences were certainly not what they once were when you're held to account for assignments and the grades are solid and verifiable. 
Okay, so what what do we do about that? I mean, I, I, I can't believe that the answer to these kids losing all this time is to say, well, just push them forward and they'll figure it out. Because it sounds like if that's the case, we're going to be sacrificing an awful lot of kids and just sort of wishing and hoping that their future turns out. There's got to be something as far as a suggestion for how we catch these kids up. Well, it's very frustrating, Scott. And the New York Times, for example, in yesterday's paper has a an expose on how much time and how much what the cost were was for the covid disruptions in the united states where there is a lot more evidence and what the article it was a huge article in in the new york times it, it says that the most adversely affected were those that were the most disadvantaged and they are marginalized kids racialized kids they're far worse off than any other group and there's what evidence we have in canada shows that to be the case you know what I find frustrating, and let me be honest with you, we have a lot of progressive educators in Ontario who have fought so hard to try to uh, equalize opportunities, to close uh, the gaps between those who were advantaged and disadvantaged, and they're honestly not saying a whole lot. Um, they have gone silent, um, and it's mostly people who are concerned about the structures and the loss of time and those that have always been a, a concerned about accountability that are actually speaking up. Uh, have you noticed there's a gap there in the whole discussion? Where are the educational progressives on how, what we're going to do and how, how we're going to commit to this? Um, in fact, you even hear people saying things like, well, they've, you know, they've increased their facility on computers and it uh, doesn't really matter if they fall behind. They've been given a wonderful opportunity to learn at their own pace. I mean, I think there's a lot of people that just haven't really woke up and smelled the coffee. This is a crisis of pandemic proportions, and we haven't really seen the full magnitude of it. I think next or this coming September, when we have in-person learning and teachers confront just how far behind the kids are, then we're going to be hearing a lot of stories about this issue. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I mean, look, I, I respect teachers. Uh, there are great teachers, there are not great teachers, but I respect what they do, and I just can't imagine a teacher who goes into a class, let's say it's a grade eight teacher and half your class has been really focused on doing their learning over the last year and may with their parents help or just because they got at it, they may even be ahead of where they should be. And others who checked out are now way behind. How do you possibly teach a class that works for both those who are way ahead and those who are way behind and not disinterest both sides of them? We've got three levels of inequities that are emerging. One is the one we just mentioned there, and that is those students who, to begin with, were behind others and were struggling in school. Right. In all likelihood, they're going to be in, in dire straits when school returns. They're likely the ones who didn't have the parental supports, didn't have the encouragement or the resources or access. So they're worse off. The second group uh, is an interesting group, those who are self-sufficient, who have um, financially, um, I would say, better off parents, who were able to buy resources, to uh, get tutors, they may be a little bit ahead. And certainly we see evidence that in reading and uh, the level of, of uh, comprehension of higher level reading, they seem to be a bit further ahead. And then there's a third group, and I, I, let's, let's focus on the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. How are we going to deal with classes where a sizable proportion of the kids are vaccinated and the others aren't? Are we going to have two classes of students? And I think that's where uh, Dr. Kieran Moore is 
is uh, weighing in with some suggestions about how we're going to deal with the age 12 to 17 students who have a very low rate of vaccination. Um, it's, it's estimated that maybe 40, 45 percent of the kids from 12 to 17 won't be vaccinated before school starts. Um, the other question, of course, is masking. You know, I think it might be better to just require masks for everyone and start the year off with a very strict regime and then to relax it over time. But there's still some questions. We don't know yet whether masks and social distancing are going to be required at any level in the Ontario school system. Paul, we only have a minute left here, but one of the things, I, I know that schools these days blanch at the idea of failing kids, or they don't even use that word, holding a kid back, repeating a grade, but should parents who see that their kids are now not ready, that they didn't move ahead enough should parents have the right to go to the schools and say look this year i really want my kid to stay back a year because there's no way he or she is ready to move along i think that's problematic because what makes you think it would be any better um one thing we know about grade levels they're very fluid now um any grade say grade nine you might have students that are functioning at a grade 10 level nine ten level you've got many that are at grade six seven level in reading capacity and, and knowledge and, and um, skills. So you, you could actually stay back in grade nine and you could be in a better class than the one you were in. But that's and, a scathing and indictment, the, what you just said. You have an education is you don't know what you're going to find at each grade level. So if you stay back thinking it's all about the curriculum that you're going to be taught, um, what about class behavior? What about discipline? Mm. What about the, the academic focus in the class? There are a lot of other things to consider. So I think most parents think, you know, it's, it's kind of too much of a risk. Uh, there are disadvantages to being held back in your grade level. Uh, you, may, you may get a better chance to master things, but you may also find that it's not much better than it was the first time. So I think um, there's all kinds of reasons why I don't generally recommend retaining students, even though there may be legitimate reasons now to think they're way behind. That, uh, I don't know, we don't have time to talk about it. I wish we did next time. But that, that's a scathing indictment of the system, though, that we have kids who are into grades and they could be operating at a level so far behind. That that just, I don't know what that says about how they keep getting pushed through without being prepared. But as I say, that's a discussion for another day. Uh, Paul Bennett, Director and Lead Researcher with the Schoolhouse Institute, Canada's Best Education Consultant and Analyst. Really appreciate the time, as always. Thanks for doing this. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a five-part series uh, in the Hamilton Spectator at thespec.com. You can see it there now. It's called Trigger, Inside Hamilton's Mob War. It's reported on by my colleague, Nicole O'Reilly, who has done just amazing work on this. Terrific journalism by a terrific journalist. Um, The series launches with the assassination of Angela Musatano. You probably remember the story where he was gunned down in his driveway. His wife was just nearby. She ran into the car and saw him. Um, and they've got video. The, 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 the security cameras that were on the house, see this guy in a balaclava come running up and just shoot him while he's sitting in the driver's seat of his car. And what makes this story so compelling and so startling beyond the obvious, I mean, it doesn't really even sound real, does it? I mean, that this stuff, it's not real, except it is. And what makes it so startling is that for the longest time, it seemed that things were very quiet 
when it came to organized crime and the mob and those kind of things. I mean, everyone knows Hamilton is a place that's had a history of this, but it seemed like the mob had kind of just packed it in. These were stories from a time in the past and we'd moved into a new century and new time. Well, apparently not. I want to bring in Stephen Matelski. He is a criminal psychology professor at Mohawk College here in Hamilton. Uh, he's a lecturer at Queen's University. He has been a police sergeant for 21 years with the Halton Regional Police Service, worked in organized crime or cover, not in organized crime, but, you know, helping to stop organized crime. And now he's the author of a book called Undercover. And he joins us now. Stephen, how are you today? Hi, Scott. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate you coming on because this is, as I say, this is the part of the thing that I think has caught a lot of people off guard in the last little while is that things had been so quiet for so long. And then all of a sudden we have story after story after story of people being shot and people being killed. Did it surprise you when it started up again? No, not at all, Scott. And if you go back into the history of organized crime when it started decades ago and came over to North America, this whole code of silence or what they call omerta in Italian is, you know, organized criminals don't want to be on the front page of newspapers because it generates heat. It generates attention. And we have this tendency, uh, which is uh, uh, erroneous, to assume that if it's quiet out there, that the, the mafia is no longer present. But that, that couldn't be further from the truth because it might not be as powerful and prominent as it was even 10, 15, 20 years ago. But there are many players in the world of organized crime that are still around. And we're seeing that playing out on the streets of not only Hamilton, but the GTA in general. But the difference too is that there was a time, and, and maybe I'm glamorizing this from TV or movies, but there was a time when it seemed it was kind of a, a, a thing to be known, to be out in public that you, you were the face of this or that people knew. Now we don't, most people wouldn't be, but once upon a time we could name the big names in this, in this area. Now, I don't know how many people could name who the people are who are running things. It's kind of the, the, the perception, the, the, the public appearance of it has gone away. I would say that's totally true, Scott, because it's the, the public persona of the mafia has kind of been watered down a little bit. Uh, with that said, you still have some old school mafiosi that are still around and still very prominent. Um, you know, the, the whole thing about maybe 20, 30 years ago was this, you know, when The Godfather came out, Francis Ford Coppola, you literally saw mobsters, especially in New York City and probably even in Hamilton and Southern Ontario. They flocked to the movie theaters and it became this sort of blurred distinction of reality of art imitating life or is it life imitating art? And we've seen this in Canada and the United States in traditional organized crime. You know, these monsters watch all these shows and movies. And there came a time when it was like, okay, you know, the actors are actually studying real mobsters, but the mobsters uh, on the flip side are sort of not copycatting, but there is sort of that tendency with, with uh, multimedia movies in this genre. All right. So, so you mentioned art imitates life. I, I mean, this, I, I almost feel like this is a really stupid question to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway. When you watch the, the Sopranos or you watch the Godfather or whatever, I, is that, is it, is there any real connection to that? Or is that entirely a Hollywood creation or is that somewhat reflective of the way it goes? Well, the Sopranos is based in New Jersey. It was loosely based on uh, the, the Cavalcanti family, which is a traditional organized crime family in New Jersey. And just to tell you a quick aside, uh, just from, you know, my experience 
in my past professional life, Project Windfall uh, started up. It was a joint forces operation, and the epicenter was in Hamilton. And that early project actually was looking at the Musitano crime family uh, simply uh, for their gambling rackets and operations. And some of the wiretap conversations that were intercepted, intercepted were uh, the Musitano brothers. And, you know, Angelo, I remember speaking to one investigator who worked on that project, Angelo was heard on wiretaps trying to, you know, talk like Joe Pes- Pesci from Goodfellas, you know, reciting the lines, uh, John Gotti quotes. Um, so there is that sort of blurred distinction there. And it, it's, mm. you, you know, they had absolutely no idea, obviously, they were being recorded. But that's some of the things that have played out. Um, you know, Hollywood does go, not as much now, because it's, it's not as prominent as it used to. But, you know, it was not uncanny for Robert De Niro to go down to Little Italy, Little Italy in New York and hang out in some of the uh, mafia social clubs when he was preparing for a movie. You know, whether it was Goodfellas or... Uh, um, Casino, you know, any any of those sort of Martin Scorsese genre-like films, um, that that was very prominent, more so a few years ago than now, Scott. All right, so you said off the top, and I, and I agree that you're right about this, I expect, and that is that they don't want to be on the front page of the papers, they don't want to be, they want to be keeping things quiet. I'm not sure that the folks who are in the mob right now are thrilled that the spec has a five-part series reminding people of all the stuff that goes on. But then you look at the stuff that happened in the last number of years with, you know, even the Angelo Musitano right in broad daylight. These are not quiet killings or quiet activities that they did. They had to know this was going to create a massive splash. Absolutely. And these are what I call uh, personal uh, indicators, in, in, you know, w- with the sort of making of a mafia hit. There are... Uh, you know, if you look at the Johnny Papali hit, even the Pat Musitano hit, yeah, they were killed. It, they were very eerily similar. There's a lot of symbolism with uh, retaliation in terms of, of mafia hits. And, you know, the Pat Musitano and Johnny Papali are very, very par- parallel and overlap. But those occurred in public areas. Those are meant to send sort of a general message, you know, a violent act, uh, albeit. But when you look at the Angelo Musitano murder and what we're looking at, that sort of the Albert Ivarone uh, what looks like a retaliatory homicide for Angelo's murder, they both occurred. It was much more of a personal, uh, a personal nature with that, with those two homicides, you know, mere steps uh, from the residence, you know, Angelo, uh, you know, you don't want to see anybody succumb to that, but when you're in that life, you know, it's that motto in by the gun, out by the gun, but those types of hits occurred mere steps away from the front door where their families was. And Angelo had three young kids. They easily could have been, you mm. know, I know they had trackers on his vehicle and whatnot, but kids could have easily been in the backseat when that, when that violent incident took place. So that's a real personal message in the underworld when it occurs that close to home, as opposed to a general public setting. And, and your line again, in by the gun, out by the gun. I mean, look, I, I know someone who know, knew Angelo pretty well in his later life. And he had become, by all accounts, a different guy, a church-going guy, a, a Christian man who, who had sort of renounced that life. But again, it, it, it's pretty clear that your past in this life never gets forgotten. It's Your past is always going to be your past. You can't walk away from it. That couldn't be more accurate, Scott, because in the mafia, there's no retirement plan. There's no Freedom 55 <laughs> or RRFD. <laughs> It, it doesn't matter if, if you found God 10 times over. The mafia never forgets what happened. 
And if you look back, Scott, like 1997 was really the spiraling turning point for the Musitanos in terms of their slow downward decline. And the only reason they weren't clipped for the Johnny Papilli hit, you can't do these types of hits, first of all, without permission within the mafia and without some solid, powerful backing. And the Musitano brothers had Montreal, namely the Rizzuto crime family. Vito Rizzuto came down to Hamilton. He, he called them the boys, the kids. And without that Rizzuto backing, that Papilli hit never would have happened. But when you look at that timeline and then that trajectory and that escalation of violence after Vito Rizzuto got out of jail and his family was fighting to maintain power in Montreal, when he died of cancer, Vito, in 2013, you can see the timeline. And this is when sort of the foreshadowing of violent events to happen. You know, Pat Musitano's house or his car was torched in 015. Rizzuto died in 013. And then Angelo was shot in 2017. And then a month later, after his brother gets killed in his driveway, Pat's house is shot up. You know, and we saw the attempt uh, two summers ago. And then Pat was uh, murdered last year in Burlington, this time uh, around this time last year. So um, when you lose that backing and that power, that's when, you know, that, that vacuum opens up and other people are, are willing to move in and take over. And, you know, in the corporate world, a merger is a professional, it's legitimate. In the mafia, when there's a, a, a corporate or illegitimate corporate takeover, violence is going to be not too far behind. You said again about the the fact that things are more quiet now, but what what does that mean in 2021 with the mob? What what are the, uh, again, once upon a time in way back, go back to Al Capone. I mean, the mob was speakeasies and things like that. What, what is the mob involved in? in Hamilton and other places in 2021? What's their business? The top two rackets, Scott, historically have been drugs and gambling. The shift towards gambling uh, has become much more prominent with the increase and onslaught of the technological means to have online gaming, you know, and to hide where the servers are. And these, you just have to look at some of the past projects involving uh, traditional organized crime in the GTA, Typically, they've partnered up with, with other, uh, like, outlaw motorcycle gangs. And these, these rackets make millions of dollars. They're very difficult to, to locate, um, and they're very difficult to prosecute. And at the end of the day, that's why organized crime thrives in Canada, because, you know, some of our laws aren't as stringent as, you know, like the RICO statute in the United States that was specifically designed by a Harvard lawyer to prosecute the mafia. We have the criminal organization um, legislation in the Canadian Criminal Code. Do we use it often enough? No, we don't. Um, so gambling right now generates a lot less heat. You know, the drugs that are brought into Canada in the world of organized crime, we've had up until uh, El Guzman, El Chapo, Joaquin Guzman was incarcerated in New York two years ago. The Mexican cartel, uh, we're working freely with a lot of the organized crime groups up in Canada. So the majority of the drug trafficking involves importing it into Canada, you know, and levels of corruption. And there's there's more difficulty and there's there's more stringent uh, sentencing conditions with drug offenses, uh, mitigating and aggravating factors than there is with gambling. You know, mm -hmm. we kind of view gambling as almost like a victimless crime, even though there are a lot of... Well, since the crimes. government now endorses it and, and runs it, we, we it, it's hard to make the case for a lot of people that it's a bad thing. 
that's a, that's exactly it, Scott. When you look at COVID too, you know what happened with the OLGs, the the, the government run casinos in Ontario and beyond. They were all closed down. And that's when organized crime says, okay, there's a need out there, and now we're going to come in and service that need. So they were the, that racket of online gambling was massive even before the pandemic. So you can only imagine how much exponential money and illegitimate money is coming in just with the gambling rackets alone online. Is Hamilton still a hotbed for mob activity, or has it moved more into the Brampton and Woodbridge and other areas around Toronto? I will say right now, when you look at traditional organized crime in that specific genre of OC, Toronto has kind of become the hotbed. There are five, uh, five plus in Dragata, which is just the, a term for Calabrian-based uh, traditional organized crime families. Uh, you know, before Johnny Papalia was killed in 97 in May, you know, there were three major powerful traditional organized crime families in Hamilton, you know, Papalia, Musitano, and the Violi Lapinos. And after Johnny Pops got killed, you know, the, his brothers, everybody sort of just tapped out and said, you know, we're, we're out. We're not going to cause any problems. And so for the next uh, couple decades, it was the other two families. Well, when you look at the Musitanos, the, I mean, their namesake is decimated. Are there still uh, street soldiers and associates to that family in Hamilton? 100% there are. Um, when you look at the Violi Lupino family, you know, the Violi brothers, uh, and this is an interesting thing, like they just got incarcerated a couple of years back for an RCMP-based project called Otremens. And, you know, that involved a real-life mobster who they knew, this guy grew up on the streets of Brooklyn, was a banana crime family street soldier, did all this time standing on his head in an American jail, and he became a, a, a police agent for the Canadian federal government, the RCMP. He was close with the Violi. So for four years, he was surreptitiously recording conversations. And that's how the brothers landed in jail. And Scott, I think an interesting note here for your listeners is I, I kind of equate it to the brothers sort of repeating some of the mistakes their father made. The father, pa Paolo Violi, was originally in Hamilton. And his father-in-law sent him to Montreal, where he became underboss of the Catroni crime family. And he let this uh, electrician rent one of the rooms above his gelato store, which he used and doubled as his social club where he did business. And that electrician was actually Bob Menard, a Montreal undercover officer. And for six years, you know, there were listening devices in Paolo Violi's social club. And when the CECO, which was the sort of Quebec Commission on Organized Crime, really gained momentum in the 70s, Paulo was subpoenaed to that. And those tapes were played. Even though Paulo Violi did not testify, he remained silent. The damage was done. And we're kind of seeing sort of this repeat with the Violi brothers with that big file. Even though it wasn't a police undercover officer, the stigma in organized crime is if you let anybody into the crime family to expose, infiltrate, and reveal the inner workings of that family, that stigma is hard to overcome. And we kind of saw that, Scott, just back April of this year when Dom Violi was already up for parole, and he was actually denied. The, the parole board not only cited public safety issues, but they actually said Don Violi's life 
is is possibly going to be in jeopardy if they release him due to retaliatory offenses. Because a month after he was sentenced to jail, his cousin, Che Che Lapino, who had nothing to do with that life, was was gunned down in his garage in Hamilton. So, we, we're, we're really short on time. And I just want to ask you one more thing, because it's the thing that I think makes the most, it puzzles the most number of people about this, about this world. And that is, you've just been citing last names. We know the police know who these people are. The public knows who these people are. How is it so difficult to get convictions when we, everybody seems to know what's going on. We just can't find the way to get a lot of them into jail. It costs a lot of money. It involves a lot of technology and it involves a lot of human resources, Scott. And to put all those three factors together, you need massive joint forces operations. And I'm not, I'm not telling anything, you know, organized crime doesn't know. They follow court cases and disclosure. They learn and evolve, Scott, when they find out, you know, through court, the court process and judicial process, what techniques or, or what information you know, investigators use to sort of bring these charges to fruition in court. Um, It's just, it's, it's trying to put all those three floating factors together. And, you know, even with all the technology, you really need human assets. You need and, and do we really care, Stephen? I mean, do we really care? And I say that not being facetious, not being glib. If they're only hurting each other and picking off each other and the public is not being affected, do, do we really care a great deal? I think we should because things are getting sloppier and sloppier in this underworld of organized crime. And we saw that with Emile Barbieri hit. She had nothing to do with this life. Right, she right. was an innocent victim. And sadly and tragically, she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But I chalked that up to, you know, and we've seen, you know, the, the home invasion of, of Matt Lapino and, and all these botched crimes, which thankfully nobody was murdered. But in the case of Mila Barbieri, that is just such a tragic example of sort of the amateur hour of, of, of the people that are being hired to do the dirty work for higher ups in organized crime. And that story is in tomorrow's uh, piece in Trigger, Inside Hamilton's Mob War by Nicole O'Reilly at thespec.com and The Spectator. Very quickly, a website if someone wants to get your book undercover. Uh, Underworldstories.com. Very good. Stephen Matelski, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Scott. I really appreciate it. Today is free agency day in the National Hockey League. You may have heard something about this. Because there's a lot of money being spent today. I don't have the uh, cumulative total right now that NHL teams have spent, but let's just say it's more than you or I are likely going to make this year. Millions of dollars being promised and spent and contracts signed today. It's always a day when big money is being flashed around, which is sometimes still surprising considering, you know, COVID and this flat salary cap because it hasn't gone up because revenues haven't gone up and all this, but still there is money. There is money in the game. There is money in sports for sure. And if you are lucky enough to have been talented and in the right place and in the right circumstance, and you can now be a free agent and score, hey, hey, good for you. And around here, there is probably not even probably around here. There is nobody who has been talked about more when it comes to free agency than Zach Hyman. Zach Hyman is a guy who played for the Hamilton Red Wings in junior hockey was, I mean, I don't don't think I'm being insulting by saying 
He was not really much of a prospect. He wasn't in the OHL. He he, he was a guy who just who played junior hockey, and that's not usually the path anywhere. Went to Michigan University, started to figure it. I figured it out here, but started to figure it out there, and all of a sudden lands in the NHL and works and becomes very popular and works really hard and very effective. And all of a sudden, playing for the Leafs, boy, his stock went up and up and up. And today signs a long seven-year deal, big big money with the Edmonton Oilers. Well. His agent is Todd Reynolds, who runs Uptown Sports in Burlington, and he is the guy who has been under the water with the legs churning quickly while, while Zach Hyman's face has been the face of this whole thing. Uh, Todd Reynolds joins us now. Todd, how are you today? I'm doing great, Scott. It's nice to be here with you. Well, I, I'm sure you're doing great. I, I think you and Zach are probably both doing great today. This is uh, Congratulations. <laughs> this is pretty exciting for you guys. Thank you very much. You, um, how did First of all, just before we get into this, did you become connected with Zach through the Red Wings when you were at Dave Andertruck Mountain Arena and they were playing? Or is there another connection? I sure did. That's exactly how it all started. That's where I met uh, his father, Stu Hyman, uh, for the first time when Zach was playing for that team. Uh, we're always prospecting. We're out looking for talent, as you know. And um, we were interested in in Zach, but but almost equally as much in what we heard about Zach. Um, not just what we saw on the ice, but what we heard about his character, about his work ethic. Uh, and we quick, we quickly learned that he was a, a player that just wasn't going to be denied. You know, he was just one of those, those workers, a, a guy who really persevered, had a great attitude. And so that's, that's where it all started. Mountain arena several years ago. But there is absolutely no chance. If I were to hook you up to a lie detector test machine and inject you with sodium pentothal today, there is no chance that you pictured back then when you signed up with him that someday you'd be signing a seven-year, almost $40 million deal in the NHL with him. No, of course not. I mean, you never you never plan for that. I mean, I could look at players that were his peers and very comparable who, you know, might be still playing some of them are still playing and are pros and are, are earning you know the league minimum you know that we're very comparable at, at the same age um but again i mean he's a he's a special guy off the ice you know his reputation he's he is a worker uh very much blue collar approach to his game and uh, nobody's going to work him and i think you're always smart to put your your belief your efforts your faith your money on on a player like that so he's on the ice doing his thing all last year or for the last number of years, and you're looking after the business side and looking towards this year when he's a free agent. And everybody around here who watched the Leafs knows he had a fantastic year. And as the year is going along, people are saying, hey, look, he's got you know 15 goals, 20 goals, 25 goals. As this is going on, are you doing calculations in your head throughout the year going, okay, well, now his stock just went up to this amount and his stock went up to this amount. You, you've got to have been thinking how much he was enhancing his position through the year. Yes, I mean we're always doing that. You're always looking at the marketplace and and projecting. You, you know, we use compar- comparables, uh, just like you would in the real estate market or, or anywhere else. Um, so you can sort of see the going rate for a given player, um, and then you add in the intangibles, right? Um, which he, he has in spades. So yeah, we're always looking at that. And you have a pretty good sense, but you know, until you really get into the market and you have those conversations. It's uh, not an exact science. But it can't have hurt when 
sports talk shows and newspaper columnists and everyone else are talking about how he's driving lines and makes every line better. And even though I know it's not the media people who make the decisions to sign him, general managers hear this stuff. And it can't have hurt that basically this year it was a year-long back rub for Zach because everyone was just saying such yeah. wonderful things about him. Yes, yeah, it definitely helped. You know, the market that, that you're in uh, in Toronto, of course, uh, has a lot of eyes on it. You know, all of those things work together, but ultimately the player has to do it on the ice and and uh, and earn that opportunity, and, and he did that. But you're right, those things don't don't hurt. Teams cannot contact you. They can't contact him, obviously. They can't contact you during the year, right? That would be tampering. That's right, correct. So in this case, we had permission. It was uh, widely publicized at a certain point. It got out that Toronto had given us permission to, to speak to other teams in advance of free agency. Mm-hmm. Because and had they, you heard rumblings all through the year, though, Todd, that there was going to be X team or Y? You must hear the rumors, too, about who yeah, might be interested. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And and sometimes there's something to those, and other times it's just rumor. Do you, as that's going on, are you studying each of the teams to prepare for if they do call, or do you just sort of wait until they do call and then get working on it? That's right. We have to wait, really. You know, you're looking at teams, of course, things can change, Um depth charts are changing as we speak right now so uh but that's a situation where you have a a pretty good idea uh from a distance anyway of what the team's needs are and if your player would would fit that need so you might have a handful of teams that are um circled how how many teams reached out to you when you got permission for him to speak to other teams we had we had uh, i mean several like two-thirds of the league anyway Really? Uh, okay. Yes. Yeah. So there, there was an overwhelming amount of interest. Some teams were in more of a position to know that they could do something because of their, their current cap situation and depth charts. Other teams, um, you know, were still uncertain with the expansion draft. Who are they going to lose, et cetera. So um, it was... So do you talk uh, with all of these teams? Do you talk with all of these teams then, or do you go to Zach and say, listen, here's the teams that are interested. Who do you want me to talk to? Uh, I, I have conversations personally with all of those teams. And and then I would update my client, just like in any situation, I'd go back to the client and say, you know, look at here's, uh, you know, teams that we've spoken to in the last day or two, and this is the interest, and this is what their um, range will be or, or what their their expectation will be in terms of the term of the contract and the salary. Um, you know, is this of interest to you? And then you start to whittle down your list um, just over time naturally. And at the end you have one place that you want to go and that's what you choose to do. Let's get into some of the stuff that people then absolutely, I don't think know how this works. So when a team reaches out to you, are you the one who go when they call up? Let's say Team X calls you and says, "Todd, we're interested in Zach Hyman." Do you say, "Okay, what what are you looking to offer?" Or do you tell them, "Here's where our starting point is. Let's go from there." How, how does the how do the negotiations get going? Well, so, sometimes it can be both. I mean, at the earlier stages, it, it could be both. The team could say, "Look, at this is what we'd be prepared to do." You know, does that fit? Is that is that going to be in the range to be competitive? Because they want to know as well. Like, do we need to, you know, turn the page and and go after a different player? because we might not be able to afford this situation. And in some cases, they're asking us, where do you think it's going to land? Where do you think it's going to fall? So that's, um, 
you know, there is a bit of both there, Scott. Is it is it right away um, a difficult negotiation with these guys, or or are both sides generally pretty clear on what a reasonable number is? Like, are these things when when you start with most teams, are there massive gaps, or are you usually in the same ballpark? Well, in a situation like this, I think most teams that would call or express an interest uh, would have a sense of where it's going to land. Okay, certainly on the dollar figure, they would. The term. That's another matter. There's some teams that might say, ooh, you know, seven years or whatever the term happens to be on a given situation. That's a little rich for us. Too long. We're not willing to go there, et cetera. So some teams will 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 drop out, you know, just just by way of, of you know, not being able to, to do what the other teams are willing to do. Uh, but it's, I think, pretty straightforward when when you have a player like this that the market will speak. So if, um, it, it, you know, it's like the housing market, right? I mean, you know, you know, the housing market, like if you see a house right now on the market in southern Ontario, and it's a million dollars, you know, you're not going to get it for 750. Mm. So, so yeah. It, yeah. it's a bit, it's a bit like that. The market speaks and I think people understand it. What else goes into the discussions then? Because, you know, money is part of this for sure, but there's also other things that players and their agents negotiate for. So as you're talking, are you saying, okay, fine, that, you know, X number of dollars is great, but how are you going to use him on your roster or who's he going to play with? Or is that kind of stuff entirely up to the coach and we're just going to let that fall where it is? We just want to know what the money is. No, I mean, the money is one part. The other, you know, conditions of a contract are important, such as no move or no trade protection, signing bonuses. I mean, there's a number of other components that, that would come into play. Um that, that some people would say are, are equally as important or more important than the AAV of a contract than the actual yearly salary of the contract. So that's, that's the one maybe answer to part of the question. Then the other part is usage. And generally that's, that's addressed. Uh, but it's, it's obvious more so in a case like this, because you look at a roster, you look at where the gaping hole is and the need and what they're going to pay someone like Zach Hyman, it's pretty obvious where he's getting plugged in. So you, in, this, but, in this case, that, that was that was definitely addressed, but it was exactly what everyone expected to hear. But you can't, that, that's nothing they can guarantee, right? Because that will ultimately no, come down to the coach. No, you can no, get some sort of almost assurances or suggestions, but he's going to have to live with, if he goes there and they say, yeah, you know, we told you you're going to play with Connor McDavid, but we've changed our mind. You got to live with that then. No guarantees in hockey, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> As you know. No, no, there's no guarantees in hockey, but uh, of course it's up to the player. He has to play well. How, how sought after a free agent do you have to be, honestly, in order to be able to flex the muscles to look for a, a no-trade deal or other things like this? Because, I mean, I, not everybody can get that. You, you have to be someone that really has a lot of demand around you, I would assume. Yes. You do, and 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 again, if there's certain teams that are willing to do it, and another team wants to get in and compete on that player, then they need to do it as well to be competitive. Mm. Are, are there any? Have you ever had a player, and you don't have to mention a name because you probably wouldn't anyway? But um, have you ever had a player that's had unusual requests that would be sort of off the board for something they would like to be thrown into their contract? Not necessarily money, but conditions or anything else. 
No, not not really. I mean, I would I would jokingly say more from the dad than than the player. <laughs> <laughs> if like anything, what? I don't know, but just you know, just uh, well-meaning, but but probably not something that any agent would would want to go to a team with. Right, and the reason I ask is because I remember back in the day when um, when Roger Clemens signed with the Blue Jays. So we're talking like twenty years ago, and one of the things that came out later was that he had demanded an extra locker next to himself in the clubhouse, and you know this and that and the other. I know there was a Kevin Brown was a pitcher who uh, left. Uh, I think he went to the Florida. They went from Florida to Los Angeles and demanded something like. 15 private jet trips a year for his family. I mean, that kind of stuff. Do, do perks get thrown into contract negotiations or in the NHL, that's not as much? No, it's not even allowed, really. Oh, really? All. Yes. So, yeah, those those uh, fringe benefits uh, would, would fall under cap circumvention. So, so flights for families to come to road games and stuff, that would have to fall under the cap? Uh, yes. I mean, they're okay. not allowed to do those things. Um, so, I mean, as far as my clientele goes, that's nothing that, that we've ever been, we've ever asked for or ever been presented uh, mm. with by a club. Once you get it whittled down, and I mean, there are options, especially in this case. And I mean, every agent is going to have guys who they're going to sign, but not everyone is going to be under the demand, for example, that Zach was this time. When you finally get it whittled down to some options, you're an advisor as well as a, an agent. Do you sit down and help him hash this thing out? Or do you say, here's your options and I'm leaving you alone. Call me back when you have a decision. Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. I, I guess uh, some players want more input than others in that process. They, they all want some. They all want our opinion. I mean, that's what we're here for and that's what they, they've come to trust our and value our opinion over the years. I mean, I've worked with Zach since he was 16 years old. So, you know, he certainly look, looks to me and, and, you know, his family and other people in that circle to, to give him their thoughts. Uh, so, but ultimately I don't make a decision for the player. So, you know, today we have other players that are in the process of signing or, or just have, and, you know, they might have three teams at the end and uh, we talk it through. And the player goes away, maybe talks to his wife, his girlfriend, his parents, calls me back and says, it's Team X. You know, that's what I've decided. So that's usually usually the way it unfolds. I mean, this obviously is crucial for him and for other clients like him, but it's pretty important for you too, I'm guessing, because other players around the league are going to be watching a guy like him and what he's able to get from Edmonton. And that reflects directly on you and your negotiating skills. And you're going to want to be able to add more players to your roster. So this isn't just a big day for Zach Hyman. It's a big day for Todd Reynolds. It is. It's a big day for us. And we're, we're grateful that Zach has chosen to keep us on the job, Scott. So, you know, we're thankful for him and his family and we appreciate the loyalty. We've had great success with our clients being loyal. The business where there is a lot of movement uh, players do leave agents and go with other agents and and uh, some of them have had three four five agents zach's only ever had one and that's me and i'm i'm very grateful for that they're an amazing family to work with and uh he's just a, a gem of a guy it's uh, it's an interesting story behind the scenes we don't uh, we, we we think we know a lot about what happens i don't know that we actually really do but uh, todd reynolds listen i really appreciate you taking a few minutes talking about it today i know i know it's a busy day for you and uh 
enjoy uh, whatever dinner you're having tonight to celebrate. I'm sure there's a few extra dollars in your pocket for the commission on this uh, one. So thanks, enjoy Scott. your evening tonight. It's always good to talk to you. And, and I'm glad that we found the time to do it. So thanks for having me on. Excellent. Todd Reynolds from Uptown Sports, Zach Hyman's agent. Now, if you're a Leaf fan, you don't have to hate Todd. That's uh, it's, He's just doing his job. It's okay. It's, it's, uh, it's Zach's decision ultimately. So there you go. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.